Welcome to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode four, the third of my practice power pods designed specifically for the parents of young artists. We had an amazing response to our introductory episode, and I can't wait to give you some great insights on practice. As usual, I'm going to give you real talk from all the perspectives, student, teacher, adjudicator, and parent. Today, I'm releasing three episodes to cover the practice advice I have for students in three age groups, elementary, middle school, and high school. But you might want to consider listening to all three. All kids are different, and they develop at different rates. There will be things from each of these three podcasts released today, which I bet will apply to everyone. This episode four is devoted to our high school age students. If I'm lucky, you've listened to some of the previous episodes. Since every child is unique, the middle school episode might still apply to your high schooler. I hope you find some of the information there useful too. So let's get started. By now, your child has probably been training for years and has a solid schedule for lessons, rehearsals, youth orchestra, and chamber music. Are we still battling practice? You bet, but in a different way. We now have hours of homework, the pressures of a full-blown social schedule for some, and looming college apps. And that's just for starters. What do they respond to for motivation? Most high schoolers are now fairly accustomed to the requirements of orchestra auditions and have familiarized themselves with the local competitions, if not national and international ones as well. For many, this really helps them stay motivated to practice. They know they need to get X, Y, and Z done by said date to be eligible for this audition or competition round. They can research the repertoire requirements and map out a calendar to see what they are able to do and strategize for success. Most kids find this very motivating to see the whole picture, and I feel it can also eliminate surprises down the road. Word to the wise, be sure to mark in family events, holidays, and major school exams and tests in your calendars to see conflicts ahead of time. They may not be able to do certain competitions or events if you have a trifecta of things happening that same week or maybe even the week before. And don't feel badly if that's the case because over the long haul, it won't help them to stay motivated to practice if they are hugely overwhelmed. Learning to say no to certain things is good for them because it allows them to focus on the things they know they can do well and pick quality over quantity. One thing that really motivates high schoolers to get to the practice room is their favorite performers. They usually have a list by now. They follow them on social media, go to their concerts, and if they're lucky, they work with them at summer festivals or in master classes. I think the greatest part about social media these days, which led me to a lot of you, by the way, is Hilary Hahn's 100 Days of Practice. There was something so revolutionary about it because we saw this inspiring, world-famous violinist practicing every day, and she invited us to do it with her. We hear her mistakes, her struggles, and sometimes her triumphs. We see her practicing rain or shine, and her devotion is so beautiful. 
Finding things like this can really inspire teenagers because it lets them know that they are not far away from finding careers of their own and that they have things in common with big artists. We all have to work hard to get results, and it dispels a lot of the myths around people like Han just being so talented that they can play perfectly. Nope, she works harder than anybody out there. One conductor I know who has worked with her said she practiced more around their scheduled event than any other soloist he has had. Another stage manager I know told me she stayed into the wee hours of the night backstage at a hall to practice for an event the next day, requiring someone to bring her tea so that she could stay even longer than expected. You know those questions in our teens' minds about whether or not they're good enough or whether they are more talented than the next person? Han sends them an internally positive message. Hard work is where it's at. So get back to practice and dig in. If your kid has a favorite musician, see if you can find them on social media. See if you can show them what their routine looks like and how they're working with their own practice. Some aren't as transparent as others, but some are surprisingly so. The more human they are in their postings, the better. Sheer ambition definitely leads a kid to practice, and a lot of teenagers headed toward concert careers are very ambitious. They are bound to want to play the bigger works by now, and if they aren't already, develop a solid plan for getting them there. It is far more motivating to have a list of three pieces that will lead them to the one they want than to have no notion of how they will get there at all. This is a question you should feel comfortable asking, and it shows your kid that you hear them and want to work with them still to help them play the piece they've been dreaming about. Even if you don't go to lessons anymore, have them help you compose an email to their teacher. This is a great opportunity to step in for just a moment, even if you haven't been super present in lessons, letting them take the reins of their own training. Whether they are working toward bigger rep or already on it, these pieces are incredibly motivating for practice. Teens also start to really love working with other musicians and need more and more time with pianists to prepare larger works and sonatas. Even if you are involved in a program which offers a certain amount of time with pianists, go for more if you can. By the time I was in high school, I was studying orchestral scores and working with a pianist twice a week. In conservatory in Paris at 16, I had two separate rehearsals with piano a week to prepare for my lessons, where the pianist was also always in attendance. Since I had two lessons a week, that meant I had four hours with a pianist a week. Sometimes I had even more than that. This is a very worthwhile investment to make, and while it is hard for some to get their head around paying for more than a program automatically offers, I would urge families to try it if they can, to see what a difference it can make. If you can't do this, I would try doing more score study so that the presence of the pianist is not surprising at all, but more just the realization of what was on the pages they studied. This way, they will be afforded the opportunity to feel the beauty of real chamber music, which can be very inspiring and lead to very meaningful practice on larger works especially. In the midst of today's practice episode, I want to talk a little bit about instrument purchase and how it can motivate kids to practice even more. By now, your kid has a pretty distinct idea of their own style and is developing a unique voice on their instrument. 
it might also be a good time to discuss the purchase of an instrument that really helps them reach new heights. It's hard to describe how much of a practice motivator this can be. This is, of course, something that you should bring up with your teacher so they can help you search in the right direction. For some of my students, that purchase was a launching point. It is always scary financially to make this plunge, but sometimes a teacher knows a modern maker or a shop that can help you with cost or give you a better deal in a trade-in. I usually tell parents to think of it this way. Your child might have a very unique and beautiful voice playing their instrument, but if it is a fine instrument, it will be so much clearer for everyone to hear, so it will become instantly recognizable as theirs. Kind of like a beautiful photograph shot through a camera phone versus the exact same shot done by a top-notch camera and lens. Same picture, but infinitely sharper and clearer, evoking more immediately vivid emotions, much more memorable. Think of the most beautiful photographs you have ever seen that have won awards. They stay in your memory, and when you even just think of them, the knee-jerk emotions they first gave you come flooding back. This is what a fine instrument can offer a young artist. And while we're at it, let's talk about facility. The only weekend I ever spent with a Strad gave me more insights about my own artistry than years on any other instrument. It was like having a honeymoon with my own voice. I had a Guadagnini on loan for years also, and when I returned it, I felt like my heart was ripped out of my chest. It was so special. I've also had very fine modern instruments generously on loan to me, and I was devastated to give them back for the exact same reasons. And this is for another podcast one day, but the price difference is staggering between modern and antique, so it's definitely a factor to think about. Most importantly, a special instrument tailored to my musical voice brought me more motivation to practice than I ever imagined possible. So whether it is pursuing a large purchase or a loan, it is worth exploring. By now you might be thinking, I thought this was an episode about practice. But think how this will affect the practice. Think how inspired your student could be waking up knowing that this instrument is waiting for them. It really makes a large difference. Having said all of this, I cannot state enough how much practice can be affected by your own instrument or equipment being well-maintained. For violinists, there are pretty standard guidelines to keeping our instruments sounding clear and working with good facility. That includes sound post adjustments, clean strings, good bow hair, and lots more. I advise my parents to see a luthier 10 to 14 days before large events. This avoids major catastrophes like bridges falling down or strings breaking. Sometimes there's just general upkeep that needs to be done on instruments like pegs needing to be refit or bridge recut. Certain repairs take longer than others and you will learn this as you go. Having a luthier who is very convenient to you can be paramount as a young violinist, but also just knowing one who will work with you and your schedule can be a lifesaver. I once had my fingerboard planed right before a national competition because they said it seemed like a good idea when they saw it. I don't think I've ever seen my teacher so upset, but I didn't tell the luthier that I had a competition. I kept it to myself. My Bach was so out of tune that weekend. So timing can be important. B 
be upfront with your luthier and let him know what you have scheduled and when. Strings take time to break in, and some players need more adjustment time than others. It can truly be a very individual thing. Sometimes luthiers won't ask you any of this, so you definitely need to learn to speak up because otherwise they can't do their jobs very well. Don't put off this type of maintenance either because it makes practice harder, which is why I'm talking about it today. If a violin needs a sound post adjustment, for example, full ranges on the instrument will be unclear or sound fuzzy, making technique near impossible. This affects all aspects of the practice and rehearsals for this young person. Whereas after the adjustment, they can actually hear what truly needs their attention. I have put off my own maintenance on my instrument because I always feel stressed trying to find practice time, and I've regretted it every time. It is well worth skipping practice to have your instrument looked at. They can make your equipment work for you, and then you will suddenly hear all of your hard work. Let's talk about keeping our teens feeling empowered. Teens who feel empowered by their art work harder. Teenagers are empowered when they are able to express their opinions and accomplish great things on their own. They are already well on their way to being independent by the end of high school, and they're asking for more and more space to do things alone. If they set about a strategy to do something on their own and succeed, this can be quite empowering and lead to more of the same. Having said that, they can be notoriously bad at time management and can sometimes underestimate how long things will take. If they are artistic on top of this, that might mean they are perfectionistic as well and that they need whatever project they are working on to be exactly as they want it, adding hours onto what they predicted it might take. Teens also tend to be very sleep-deprived, and this is a topic for a future podcast I sincerely hope you don't miss. All of these elements put together can cause conflicts, and I have both had these conflicts with my former teenager and witnessed them in real time at the studio. The important thing is to try and help them keep their commitments so that they don't easily let themselves down. A little scaffolding watching their schedules goes a long way. The more successes they experience basically flying solo, the more confident and independent they become. Now that our teens are practicing on tighter schedules, how do we boost productivity and retention? Frequently, high schoolers are tackling more pieces at once, and sometimes they are preparing large programs and multiple auditions. They are doing this on a very tight schedule. This requires a lot of strategizing, and I highly recommend either finding an app to help you track your practice or charting in a way you can easily keep up and follow. I have prepared four to five hours of music a lot simultaneously over the years, including multiple concerti in the same weekend. For some, this can seem overwhelming, but if you trust your system of learning and preparation, it can be just fine, even exhilarating. I think there is something to be said about helping teenagers fall in love with the power of learning and what it is possible for them to achieve. Once they are hooked, it is like an adrenaline boost to use your full power of practice. Private lessons for your teen are likely getting very complex, so I advise recording them. I use a LiveScribe pen which records sound and pen stroke simultaneously. This way I can click on a note I wrote and it plays the music which was happening that inspired that comment. 
You can also use a phone or Zoom camera, but the point is you need to record things so that you can review them later, and especially if you are straddling many pieces at once. Try and remind your teen to practice a lot in the day after their lesson, as this is the optimal time to review newly acquired information. Some teens will still cram right up until their lesson, and then they're exhausted and take a tiny break, but this isn't really the best choice. I also employ a lot of spaced repetition practice with my older kids and sometimes very advanced middle schoolers. Spaced repetition is incredibly effective and involves working intensely on a targeted section until you see the body relaxed and the playing improved. And then you leave it until the body almost forgets the new information, kind of like a battery nearly empty. And then you surge it again. In simple terms, based on research, sparsely spaced repetitions produce better results than densely made repetitions. But to really boost its effects, in my experience, you want to really get down to the wire to where you have almost completely forgotten what you did, and then you surge it. Sounds like practice in Vegas almost, right? Maybe I'm a thrill seeker, but honestly, I'm just a mom, and I used to work 40 to 50 hours a week, so I couldn't do densely spaced repetitions. So for some things, this might mean day between targeted practice, but for others, which are newer or more difficult, you might revisit it later that same day. This allows for the practice of multiple pieces at once, because you have cut out all of the unproductive repeating of things freeing up that ample space. You basically identify how long you need between sessions on each of your troubled spots or new pieces, and then you stagger your practice accordingly. It turns out that repracticing something too early also isn't beneficial at all. This surprised me too at first because I think we've all had that urge to practice something again in a few hours if it was super hard, just to check in on it. Apparently, that gets us almost nowhere unless that thing you practiced was so complex, you literally have forgotten it already after two hours. I had to employ this spaced repetition method to work on large concerti when I was also teaching a full schedule. I would hit things in the morning and then sometimes have to practice something entirely different at night, and then I wouldn't be able to approach that first set of repertoire until the very next day. It felt risky at first. But soon I realized it was actually working better and it allowed me to both teach and perform as long as I charted what I was doing. If by the next morning my body had no recollection of what I was even reading on the score, which happened a lot with 20th century music, I knew I should have at least touched on it the night prior. Lesson learned. Eventually I was able to estimate pretty well how to space things and stay really on track. With teens, they often will start something new and obsess over it. Getting it in their fingers is such a great feeling. And then they take a day off. And when they come back, their body remembers very little of it. They missed their window. But maybe not by as far as you might think. If they had reapproached this new material again on the same day, it would have made very little difference. The next morning though, after a deep sleep and their body would have delivered a very nice practice return, like an investment. It's all about the timing. This more strategized way of practice can allow for a better schedule for your teen and for them to get 
out more and experience their life. I want that for everyone because it means for people who are hitting the stage later on, we're going to hear actual things that they've lived in life. We do need to live fully in order to have something to share on stage. If this sounds interesting to you, please read more about it because I think it was a really pivotal thing for me as a musician. When it comes to how much a teen should practice, I have heard many variations on how much you need to be a top-notch musician over the years, but I never advise practicing more than three and a half hours a day, maybe four. Most teens don't even have that unless they are homeschooled, but if they harness their full focus and work thoughtfully with strategic goals in place, they can thrive on a few hours a day. Some kids and parents don't believe this until they see it in action. It truly is not the hour spent, but it's the thought behind them. I also like to talk a lot about schedules, sleep, and nutrition, and that's going to be the next podcast, so please stay tuned for that. If you really want to boost your productivity past practice strategies, that podcast is definitely for you. Here's a good story I like to tell to demonstrate falling in love with the power of practice and what we are all capable of. For years, I was on an emergency list for soloists in the East Coast area. I received calls sometimes when a scheduled soloist was sick and would be asked to replace them on very short notice. One of the times this happened to me, I was asked to perform The Lark Ascending. I hadn't played it in over 15 years, but it was a very special piece to my mother. So being a sentimental person, I said, sure, I could do that in a week's time. I would just drop my other projects and get to work. No problem. But then I quickly came down with 103 fever, chills, body aches, the works. I couldn't even remember another time when I had felt this sick. I could barely stand, let alone play the violin. I was on a bit of a homeopathic journey for my own health at the time, and avoiding doctors mostly, so I tried healing myself with rest, liquids, echinacea, ginger. I only got worse. My father checked in on me every day as I became sicker and sicker. He knew I had signed the contract to play this concert and was trying to gently ask me about it. At some point, I must have seemed just delusional to him, so he came by and picked me up and dragged me to the doctor. With absolutely no sore throat, I had strep, and the doctor looked at me like I was a giraffe for trying to cure myself. She instructed me to take penicillin and said I would be fine within two days, certainly in time to play the concert, but that I would probably be too weak to play before then to practice. Hmm... But that piece is so beautiful, I thought, maybe you could heal me. (laughs) My dad looked really worried for me, but in the end, he could only watch me make decisions for myself at this stage in my career. So I laid in bed for a few days, just studying the score, and took my first stab at mental practice. I closed my eyes and imagined my fingers playing it. I put the metronome on. I imagined the colors I wanted out of the bow and the bow choreography which could lead me there. If in my imagination I made mistakes, I would go back to the beginning and start it all over in my head again. It felt more than a little risky, but something told me this was working. 
I had read all those articles on the neurons firing the same way for mental practice and how effective it could be. I had heard people talking about it, but I never really had a convenient time to try it out. I guess there really isn't a convenient time, but here I was. I was still super sick, feverish, and in bed, like a bad remake of the last scenes of Amadeus. My dad offered to drive me to rehearsal a day or so later. At this point, I had had about 1.5 hours of actual physical practice, and I thought I sounded remarkably fine, but I hadn't really talked about it because I didn't want to jinx it. He tried not to look at me and asked whether I was planning on doing this by memory. Of course, I said. You can't do Lark Ascending with music. That's blasphemy. He immediately and very passionately tried to dissuade me. You haven't had much time, Amy. You've been sick. So we made an agreement that if I slipped by memory at all in rehearsal, I would use music the following night in the performance. But I was fine, smooth sailing, and had found my brand new favorite practice technique, mental practice. More than that, I had learned yet again how powerful my learning could be. This had me really jazzed up, and it motivated me for months afterwards. It restructured some of the way I planned my time with my instrument, because now I knew I could achieve I could achieve huge things on trains, planes, on travel, while my kid played at the park, not just with the violin on my shoulder. Here's another subject I want to talk about for your teens. Most of you are out of the practice room at this point and out of lessons, but now seems like a really good time to review how important it is to support your teachers. You're taking care of all the peripherals, I'm sure, making sure your teen has what they need for auditions and events, but you might find yourself a little flummoxed at time watching your kid place lower in a competition than you'd like or score differently than you hoped. This is normal. By the middle of high school, most teenagers are trying their hardest to follow instructions, but they may still need reminders on the things they enjoy the least. It's still important for you to understand the importance of following instructions and pedagogy in your child's practice, even when you don't fully understand their reasoning. This has probably been a little tricky since middle school. Most parents don't have music degrees, and that is totally okay. It's frankly expected. But at this stage in the game, it might feel a bit awkward not understanding some of the components of their lessons or the reasonings of a teacher prioritizing one piece or technical exercise over another. Parents feel even more this way when said things are dominating a lot of the practice time. But you've entrusted this teacher with your child's training. If you're to stay with them, you owe it to your kid to do what they are asking even when you aren't sure what the motivation is behind every step. It's okay to ask when you don't understand, but sometimes the answers won't make sense either because you don't have the background to fully understand them. Here's a shocker for you. I have a great set of degrees in background in violin performance, and I've taught for over 25 years. You would think I would understand what my kid's, my kid's teacher wants 100% of the time. Nope. Sorry, as much as I wish that were true, there have been so many occasions where he's asked Ava to practice a certain way, and it didn't quite make sense to me. For the past year, I have forced myself to 
attempt to remain quiet or as quiet as I can, and waited patiently for aha moments. These are like a series of epiphanies where I would understand suddenly why we had done one thing or another. And honestly, it was a beautiful feeling. Little by little, every bit of confusion I had would dissolve and I would understand exactly what he was shooting for. Sure, I might have gone about it a different way since I'm also a violent teacher, hence my temporary confusion, but his way was brilliant and I was learning new teaching techniques for my students too. If I had, let's say, deprioritized all of the things that didn't make immediate sense to me, either consciously or subconsciously, I can tell you with absolute certainty I would have been cheating my daughter out of her own progress this past year. And I would have cheated many of my own students out of a new way of doing something. Since you probably aren't in the practice room, this will amount to you checking in on things that are a bit more obtuse or just parts of their practice you know that they avoid. And it might involve checking in on things that you don't actually understand fully but you still need to support your teachers, especially at this juncture. On a similar subject, sometimes I've encountered parents in my studio who would rather not have pieces assigned or work on things that cast their child in an unflattering light, even temporarily. Maybe your kid needs to work a little more on long phrasing or a lyrical bow arm, but for now, it makes them seem kind of less advanced than they really are. Nobody likes to sound in process, let alone a kid, and we as parents want them to love playing music, but sometimes these growing pains are necessary. Please take a deep breath when this happens and allow for growing pains in their music training. Now is the right time to work through these things before college auditions hit. I always urge my parents to allow them to sound crusty enough to get to the creamy center. Back those teachers' choices completely and enjoy celebrating as a group later at how strategic and thoughtful virtuosic training actually can be. And I know that some training or techniques are very slow moving, so you're not going to see progress right away. And if you halt in the middle for lack of immediate results, you'll miss out. Support the gradual kinds of training because so much of the time this is how training is at the upper levels. I cannot tell you how much this will serve them later on, and not just in music. Next, I would like to review again the importance of community at this point for our teens. Hopefully you have retained some of the community they built in their middle school years. But in high school, many kids are becoming master of their own schedule. You aren't picking their friends for sure at this point or arranging get-togethers as much for them. When I was a teenager, the only thing my mom was arranging was family events. Who we spent snow days with or time after school with became our decision. And then there was also more and more the possibility for romantic relationships, imposing even more complex challenges on the schedule. What I recommend to parents in this age group is to try and arrange special events with friends from that musical community, like going to a concert of a favorite artist. Foster friendships that help them come back to their instrument and deepen their connection to that commitment they've made. In my intro episode, I mentioned that a parent had voiced concerns about practice and their child having trouble keeping their commitment to their instrument. This age group definitely will be challenged on keeping on track with all commitments. In my opinion, this is an optimal time to model those commitments to family, friends, and passions or talents. 
We also need to surround them with like-minded people and mentors who will really cherish their commitment with them. Having another adult, or a few of them, who will take the time to tell your kid how proud they are of their hard work and commitment can make such a huge impact. For some adults with kids this age, this modeling of commitment and time for self-discovery is timely. I have known many parents who have in their 40s or 50s started new interests or discovered hidden talents, maybe even rekindled an old talent because they were looking for some me time, preparing for empty nest. It doesn't necessarily even need to be creative. It could be a fitness commitment or a new commitment around health. Anything that they can see you doing that you are proud of that will inevitably involve you making choices to guard that portion of your time, saying no to invitations, making sacrifices. Choosing yourself and your passions is a wonderful thing, but it's a learned skill. And as I've said before, it will serve them so well in life, definitely not just in music. I hope some of these suggestions that I've made today have been useful to you and that you will see your best practice year yet. Our next podcast is coming soon and I'm going to be talking about scheduling, sleep, and nutrition. These are what I call practice and performance primers. I've done some new research on sleep specifically for children of all ages and I'm really excited to share it with you because it has already changed how we are doing things in our house. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Podbean. If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect. Let's connect.